Yes, the scientific case for biblical creation. In Genesis 1, we read a phrase, a three-word phrase, ten times. And that is, after its kind. All living things were created to reproduce after their kind. And when we're looking at the creation model, that's very important because, uh, well, that makes it quite distinct from an evolutionary model. So on the top, we have an evolutionary model, and on the bottom, a biblical creation model. So as we see here, the, the evolution model, you see this tree, right? And the bottom of the tree, that's the beginning of time, and the top is present day for each of those charts. So with the evolution model, we have all life starts as some supposed bacteria-like beginning. And as it reproduced and it produced varieties, those varieties became to vary more and more. And so the wider they get, the more varied they are. And so at the very top, we have these extremely complex forms of life of great diversity, right? But as you go back in time, it's less and less diversity to get back to bacteria. So it's upward-onward kind of evolutionary progress. Okay, that's the evolution model. Now, the creation model on the bottom, rather, God created each kind of life. So we have these kinds. And from those kinds, because of the built-in genetic diversity which God's given it, um, you have a diversification. So there are trees also, but they're individual trees, each independent of each other. And so as we look at the evidence, we want to consider these two models and, and which fits best, or maybe none of the above, maybe some other model. So looking at quickly at some diversity, dog, the dog kind, lots of varieties of dogs, not only domestic, but also um, non-domestic, like the wolf or the coyote, or the pigeon kind, tremendous varieties of pigeons and a lot more than just those four. And then those are bread varieties. But how about some non-bread, like this praying mantis? You've seen these before, but have you seen varieties of it like this? That's pretty neat camouflage, pretty neat adaptation to that particular environment. Or this one? Or I saved the best for last. How about this one? Isn't that just like, wow, really? (laughs) How did that come about? And how could these have shared common ancestors? How could there be so much built-in genetic variety? Well, as we're learning more and more about genetics, yeah, this really, it it really is there. Uh, It's like a huge deck of cards. You can shuffle and match and recombine these things to create all kinds of diversity. It's amazing what's packed in there. In fact, uh, we won't get into this, but with Adam and Eve, uh, did you know that... uh, Adam and Eve had the genetic potential to produce every single race alive today, the very first generation. And the really genetic explanation for that is really quite simple. But that's another story another time. So here we have the father of evolution, Charles Darwin. Um, so a lot of times looked upon by scientists as a great scientist. Well, maybe a bit overrated. Actually, he, he was not trained in science at all. He's, his training was in theology. But on the other hand, don't sell him too, too uh, cheaply either. This guy was really bright. And he, although not a scientist, he was an excellent science hobbyist. And he had friends who were good scientists that he got help from. So sometimes you don't have to be good. You just have to know someone who is and get, get their help, right? I rely upon that a lot. So Charles Darwin's famous uh, book on the origin of species, something very interesting about that book. It's a very famous book, right? It's a world-changing impact of this book. But this book on, titled On the Origin of Species fails to talk about one interesting topic. It never talks about the origin of species. <laughs> you'd think that should be in there somewhere, right? Um, it talks about, he assumes varieties exist, and then nature uh, will favor some varieties over others. And so really his book is about the extinction of some varieties, not their creation. He never tries to explain the creation of it. 
and nor, neither could he. he. Nobody knew anything about genetics, and least of which uh, Darwin. So Darwin's famous five-year trip around the world as a, as a naturalist. And there they camped out for a while on the Galapagos Islands, the famous Galapagos Islands, on the, right off the coast of Peru there, of Ecuador, on the equator there. And on the bottom, um, the bottom left corner, you can see that cluster of islands. And while he was there, he was investigating different life forms on these various islands. And in particular, the Darwin's uh, famous finches. So on some islands, he found these finches with these little tiny beaks, which seemed to be very well adapted, very good at getting berries and food like that. But on other islands, you had these enterprising finches that would break off thorns off of cactus and then probe bark of trees with it to get insects. So different food source, so different kind of beak and different kind of behavior. And how about this one? Look at that massive beak. <laughs> yes, and he used it as nutcrackers. So these were mainly found on drought-afflicted uh, islands, and so they would go through the plant rubbish, old dead plant debris on the ground, look for nuts, and then he cracked those nuts open, and that was his food supply. So Darwin got thinking, and, and this, is, um, this is Darwin's collection of finches. He caught these and labeled them. That's his writing. And so we can see on, on different types of beaks there. And so in his diary, Darwin has this page. I love it. I think. And then you see this tree-like thing. What do you suppose he was thinking? I think we can kind of sort of guess, don't you? He's guessing something like this. Maybe all these finches actually once upon a time had a common ancestor. And then they gave, as they gave birth to varieties, different varieties, then found themselves in different habitats and adjusted to those habitats. And varieties that were not well fit didn't do so well there, either left or died off. And so now we have all these different species of finches today, all from original uh, ancestor. And I think this is true. I mean, I wasn't there. This is historical science, so this is just, you know, who done it type of trying to solve a mystery. But I think this is a very plausible. But this is consistent with the creation model, isn't it? It's still reproducing after its kind. The kinds are varied, like with the dogs, but they still remain finches. Well, Darwin then took that further and says, well, since these finches have these very diverse beaks. How about maybe birds are quite similar to each other? Maybe the sparrow and finch had a common ancestor. In fact, maybe all birds had a common ancestor. So we could back that tree up further. He could extrapolate it further. And if that's the case, then maybe all animals with backbones had common ancestors, that maybe the birds are related to reptiles and mammals and so forth. And if that's the case, maybe we could back it up further and connect all life together into one massive tree, and thus our evolutionary universal tree of life. And so now let's look at the evidence for that. Uh, there's other evidences we could look at. I wish we could have spent time to also include um, the embryos, but I had to do a lot of cutting here. So... At any rate, we're looking at just a, a very small sample of the fossil record, but I think very insightful. So, again, look at our model here. So, if fossil record is a reflection of evolution, what will we expect to find? Recently, lots of varieties, but as you go back in time, fewer varieties and more looking more and more alike. And just like a tree has a lot of branches, we should expect to find some samples, at least, on those branches in between types, right? We should find those intermediate forms, those transitional forms as they're transitioning from one to the other. Um, a tree, there should be countless intermediates. And so we should see a blending continuum of forms. That's what we'd predict. On the creation model, though, we'd expect, okay, we have variety within kind, but distinct uh, distinct separations throughout time between Genesis kinds. So let's see what the fossil record has to say. And now I give you exclusively uh, works done by evolutionists, evolutionist paleontologists. 
And these were sources that I obtained when I was in graduate school studying paleontology. So this uh, author was looking at proteas like amoebas and things and plants. And the top is, is recent, the bottom is old, and so the first time things appear, are they a single trunk and then spreading out? No, they kind of look like that creation orchard idea, do they not? Uh, they're all distinct from each other. Okay, so that's proteist and plants. What about animals? Same thing. They appear, but they don't connect at the base, do they? And this is an, these are evolutionists who are presenting this. They don't see it, so they don't put it. So I appreciate their honesty. So let's zoom in a little bit with a different author now on animals for which we have lots of fossils, and that's the general category of invertebrates, animals without backbones. The vertebrates fossil record is really poor. So these invertebrates, we find them right near the beginning, and yet they're all distinct from each other. And before that, we just really don't find fossils to speak of. And I think it's because what's below that was pre-flood. And I believe it's the flood that allowed for the fossilization of these things largely. But we do have some intermediates. I mean, you look at the textbooks on evolution, and they say, oh, we got this transitional form. And this is probably the most famous, of all-time famous of all, Archaeopteryx, part bird, part dinosaur. Dinosaur? Well, look, the beaks. He has socketed teeth. Birds today don't have socketed teeth, although there are a couple, there are a few fossil types that do. Uh, what else? Well, he's got that tail with vertebrae in it. Okay, birds have tails, but you don't have much in the way of vertebrae like this one does. And best of all, look at the front of the wings. Do you notice something strange in the middle of the front of the wings? Do you see it? His claws, like, oh, here we go. Maybe part arm, and now he's changing. it's changed into a wing, but those, the claws haven't disappeared yet. All right? So there we got this great transitional form. And so the bird size, note the feet. I mean, those are perfect bird feet. Um, the beak and the skull and I presumably the brain looks like a bird beak and brain other than the socketed teeth. Uh, wings, feathers. And speaking of feathers, the type of feathers Archaeopteryx has, here's a fossil uh, imprint of one of his feathers, and it is a type that's in the category of the strongest flying birds today. Isn't that something that the first birds, or the, one of the very first birds in the fossil record, ends up having the most modern of wings, feathers? <laughs> um, and so, actually, if we look at all these features of Archaeopteryx, they are all fully formed features. Really, what we look for for an evolutionary transitional form would be part feather, part scale. Not a fully socketed teeth, but becoming. You know, we'd see something intermediate, but rather these are all fully formed specialized features. That is not what we expect. And um, at first, I, when I first saw that, I thought that was a good case for evolution until I started thinking, wait a minute. And Stephen Jay Gould, famous evolutionist, had pointed this out also. I mean, he's a creation, he was a creation hater and one of the foremost paleontologists ever to live. And he said, smooth intermediates, there is certainly no evidence of them in the fossil, in the fossil record. And then he says, curious mosaics like Archaeopteryx don't count. What do you mean by that? Well, take the duck-billed platypus. There's a curious mosaic. He's got a bill like a duck. He's got webbed feet, something like a duck. He lays eggs like a duck. So is he duck? No. He's got fur like a mammal. He nurses his young like a mammal. He's got a tail, something like a beaver. By the way, he has poison glands like a frog and sonar like a bat. <laughs> He's just like, like, we've got all these leftover pieces. Let's put this all together and make some kind of creature. You know, with the mosaics, uh, that's, a, that's an art thing, right? Mosaics. So you might have blue tile. I could use it for the sky or I could use it for the water. Very different but the same kind of tile. 
So mosaic would be something we'd see design. So here's an example of a mosaic. So on one hand, we got a land vehicle, the tank, and a, a ship. And then what would be a mosaic in between those two? Maybe something like that, right? So a curious mo uh, mosaics would then fit into a creation model. It doesn't fit into an evolution model. So with the fossil record, you might think of it like a giant jigsaw puzzle. Imagine a jigsaw puzzle that covers the entire floor here. Thousands and thousands of pieces, okay? And so as we find fossils, we're, they're pieces, and we're putting them into this big puzzle. So what does it form? That universal tree of life? Or a creation orchard? Or maybe something else? What, is it, what does it show? It's interesting to me, when you look at textbooks... Uh, that are arguing for evolution, they always major on the parts of the fossil record that we know least about, the vertebrates. You know, they had the whale series, the horse series, um, Archaeopteryx, um, human. Um, these are ones that, according to statistical analysis, the puzzles for the fossil record for those is less than 1% complete. Okay, so if we had less than 1% of the pieces of the puzzle in here, and in the case of vertebrates, most all of them, we only had little pieces of pieces. So imagine, mostly little tiny pieces of a piece of a puzzle, and you've got less than 1% of the pieces represented in any amount. Could it be arranged to fit evolutionary tree of life? And I have to agree, yes, it could. But with so little evidence, it could be a picture of my Uncle Ferd. <laughs> it could be anything. We don't have enough evidence to, to know anything. And yet, wait a minute. We can, so is the fossil record useless? Not at all. There are portions of the fossil record that are quite nearly complete. The brachiopods is the most complete set of all, and it's estimated to be 80 to 90% complete. And these fossils are nearly always complete fossils, not just pieces of pieces. And we've got a huge range in the fossil record and huge diversity. So we have, a, this is a great collection. Some places they call these fossils fossil trash because they just have so many of them, they're considered as junk. Okay, and they look like clams, don't they? Interestingly, though, the creatures inside of them are not clam-like at all. They're more sort of somewhat insect-like. So, this is an evolutionist paleontologist who's now drawn a tree for us for the brachiopods. And notice something about this tree. Where are the connecting branches? It's 80 to 90% complete. Don't you think we should have some connecting branches by now? And notice, the, they do have connections at the base, but they're all dotted lines. Well, that means these are theoretical. He, he said, this is what we're looking for, but we've just not found it yet. The actual evidence is showing a creation orchard. All right, how about the second most complete set of fossils? The, the shelled mollusks. And once again, no connections at the base. They're all independent. When they first are found, they're fully formed and distinct, and they stay that way. So the fossils say no. And in fact... I'll turn around because I've got to read this. <laughs> this is from Stephen Jay Gould again, and this is his comments about the fossil record. He says, The extreme rarity of transitional forms in the fossil record persists as the trade secret of paleontology. The evolutionary trees that adorn our textbooks have data only at the tips and nodes of their branches. The rest is inference. Um, I better look. However reasonable, not the evidence of fossils from a paleontologist, right? We do not find intermittent varieties connecting together all the extinct and existing forms of life. And with reference to evolution, he says, we never see the very process we profess to study. Yeah, that's, this is... When he said things like this, the rest of the evolutionary community was ready to tar and feather him. Okay, 
He says, whoa, wait a minute. We've been relying upon you all these years, and now you say we've got nothing. Well, they were ready to tar and feather him, but two things happened that prevented that. Number one, well, first of all, he was a Harvard professor, and, and like, <laughs> he was the tail that wagged the dog. You know what I mean? <laughs> he was a, a big shot. Well, that's, in that, this business, that's not good enough. But what really helped him is other paleontologists, top paleontologists, came to his rescue and said, he's right. And so this was pretty much the consensus among the paleontology community. And so they were saying, you geneticists have got to find out how evolution could happen, poof, really quickly, so fast that we can't see it in the fossil record. And they said, wait, we can't do that. You guys, you fossil people, got to go out and find those intermediate fossils because this could only happen gradually. And so they were in crisis. It was a private crisis, but it was a crisis all the same. And they were still about ready to tar and feather Gould until he wrote an article titled On Panda's Thumb. And in that, he um, argued against creation. He says, well, since you hate creationists too, I guess you're one of us. And maybe sometimes it happens fast and sometimes slow. And we'll sing Kumbaya and we'll all get along. (laughs) And they've been okay ever since. But interesting, both thought the other had the evidence and neither did. Um, Perhaps... um, Arguably, the greatest paleontologist that ever lived was Colin Patterson. And Colin Patterson was a senior paleontologist at the British Museum of Natural History. And a very honest paleontologist. And he's written a lot about evolution. And one of those books about evolution, uh, one reader had noted that, wait a minute, you've, you've, you're giving me pictures of fossils and you're saying it's about evolution, but I don't see evolutionary transitional forms here. And so he wrote to Colin Patterson, who graciously wrote him back. And this is what Dr. Patterson had to say. He says, I fully agree with your comments on the lack of direct illustration of evolutionary transitions in my book. Okay, I agree. There aren't any here. If I knew of any, fossil or living, I would certainly have included them. That's quite a confession of a person who had the largest fossil record in the world. By two. And he doesn't know them. Isn't that something how our text, our non-expert textbook writers on evolution seem to have so many of them? So that's all I have to say about fossil record. For There's so much more, but these are quick snapshots. We move on to comparative anatomy. I remember in high school, this was presented as um, impressive evidence. We looked at the same sort of thing here, these uh, vertebrate forelimbs. And in these, in this case, all mammals. Notice the similar pattern. Um, not all mammals have this pattern, but nearly all mammals have one upper arm bone, the humerus, two lower, the radius and the ulna. Then you have the wrist bones, the carpals, and then the five digits, the metacarpals and phalanges. And you have that here, except for, I think that's the seal right there. I know he's not a whale or dolphin because whales and dolphins have the one, two, many, five pattern as the rest. Well, that one has a one, two, many, four. So that's one of those rare exceptions to it. But why are they so much alike? Well, two basic explanations, three explanations. Could be total coincidence. Eh, that doesn't go. Okay, so evolution explanation, like father, like son. Same features, Common features, common ancestor. Or creation model. Same design, same designer. Okay, so which is it? Well, interestingly, I, th- I thought for the longest time, in fact, until this week, I thought to, if I'm trying to put my feet back in my evolutionary view, because I did grow up as an evolutionist, and I go back into my creation view, it says, you know, I think the evolution, both fit per- pretty good, but I think the evolution view has better predictive value. So I think I've got to give evolution the credit for this one as being the better model. But this week I discovered something rather startling to me. I'd never investigated this further. Well, others have, and it turns out if these are from a common ancestor, then their embryo development should be similar as to how they develop. Also, the genetic basis of this pattern should be similar. They're not. They are radically different. 
they independently come up with the same pattern, but from very different sources. I never knew that. Uh, that and that's something I want to study some more. But that was a real eye-opener. So even here, what seems so good for evolution isn't so good. So if this pattern isn't due to common ancestry, then what's it due to? Well, evolution calls it convergence, which is a nice way of saying it was just lucky it turned out that way. Or how about same common design, common designer? So I won't go through these, but here's a whole bunch of other cases of convergence. Well, no, um, all things have in common. Ah, I'm going to skip that. So um, we're going to go right back to the base of the evolutionary tree here. That's the top left that little line there. That's supposed to be the first ancestor, and that's split off into bacteria. And then the other group is a combination of archaea and eukarya. Now let me explain what those are. Bacteria, I think you basically know what that is. Okay, They are little, tiny, tiny cells without a nucleus. Archaea are also little, tiny cells without a nucleus, but they're biochemically, they're so radically different, they think it's a fundamentally different group. They Biologists look at only three basic groups of life, these three. So, everything, so in other words, compared to archaea or bacteria, you're more like an amoeba, which is in our group. <laughs> so pretty much everything you can think of that's living is in our group, the eukarya. All right? So what's that based on? Well, various things. Uh, for instance, here's a list of things. The things in bold are where they're alike. So in this list, we find archaea and bacteria alike, right? And then we are the odd men out. Well, that makes sense. They're little tiny. They don't have a nucleus and all that stuff. So, of course, they're kind of more closely related based upon these similarities. Okay, so that fits our evolutionary picture so far. So good. Okay, let's look at some other features to compare. Now we see the archaea and eukarya are alike, and the bacteria are the odd men out. Okay, that still works, because after all, we split off with archaea at the same time, and why we split off, and before we split off from each other, we could have come across, we could have uh, derived these various characteristics that we have in common. So that works too. In other words, you can almost explain anything, can't you? Well, until we get to this one. Oh, here's a list where now bacteria and eukarya, which is us, are alike. Ladies and gentlemen, I just showed you every logical combination possible. So what's, it, what's evolution predicting here? And you can't conform that to that chart. So now you've got to, you've got to, you can make an evolutionary chart, but you've got to ignore one of those tables. You've got to pick and choose your evidence. And that's what happens in textbooks. They pick and choose their evidence. And convenient, don't, don't tell you about the problems. <laughs> so, and then more convergence. Here's creatures that, you know, remotely similar form, right? Shark, ichthyosaur, dolphin, and penguin. But these things are very remotely different groups of animals, right? Fish are quite different from reptiles, which are quite different from mammals, which are quite different from birds. And yet, how do they come up with the same form? It can't be because of common ancestors. So again, these coincidences again. And we've got a whole list of things like that. And there's, as, I, as one evolutionist put it, he says, convergence is everywhere. Well, convergence is evidence for creation. <laughs> you know? Um, so oxytocin, found in sharks, found in mammals, but nothing in between. That's a birthing hormone. Uh, sonar in bats and its close ancestor, the whale, and the other close ancestor, the duckbill platypus. <laughs> you know, it's mosaic, right? It's the, this is the mosaic patterns showing up over and over again. Uh, the eye, okay, the squid and octopus has an eye very similar to ours, especially biochemically. And then on down, flight, which is supposedly independently evolved in all these different creatures. Um, anyway, enough. Moving on. We get the idea. There's tons of that. All right, now molecular biology. And you might have heard it said that 
the DNA of chimps and humans is 98.6 identical. Well, true, but extremely misleading. Yeah, they are 98.6% identical for chosen a very select few hand-picked genes. It's not the overall similarity difference. It's only when you pick and choose certain genes. For instance, one of those genes in that group is this one. It's the gene that makes cytochrome C, which is, an, which is a protein that you need to digest food. Well, chimps need it too. And so what we've got, I've got chimps and humans paired here, and where the lines connect, that's where they're the same, which is 100% of them. So for the 312 chimp um, nucleotides, there's a 100% match between chimps and humans. Okay, common features, common ancestor, same design, same designer. Which is it? Well, it could be either here, right? And then I give you my uh, Dr. Paul Nelson. Um, I gave a talk uh, once upon a time at a place that was not very friendly to our point of view and Paul Nelson was right behind me and he gave this talk I'll just give you excerpts from it here and it was a real showstopper and then we had lunch together and he gave me these bunch of slides and we've been in occasional contact ever since so okay this is the tree of life for ants not uncles ants okay <laughs> So top left, that little line, that's the ants, supposed theoretical ancestor to all ants. And it splits off into all these subfamilies, 21 subfamilies. All right, so it's a complicated thing. Okay, so why am I showing you that? Well, we're getting there. This bottom triangle, this orangish-red triangle here, that's the biggest group, and there's 5,800-ish species in that group. There's a lot of them. And so I'm going to zoom in that because... In that particular group, I'm told that every single ant species of all those, all in that group, has been completely sequenced, which means we've got complete DNA data for all of them, which means we've got all their closest ancestries, all their closest relationships, all coded, nowhere to hide, right? So let's zoom in on that bottom triangle. And there it is. And that includes the fire ants. Yeah, I love those things, not... Uh, red harvester and leaf cutters. All right, and they have an average of about 17,000 genes in their whole gene sequence. But then we got this thing called orphan genes. You know what an orphan is, right? That The spelling there is intentional, actually. This is kind of a play on words. It's open reading frame. But actually, it does mean like an orphan, like we don't know where this came from. When you get the sequence of this gene out here, and you go, okay, computer, go to the entire database of all DNA sequences ever sequenced, and go find the closest match. And they can't find one that reasonably closely matches at all, anywhere, including among, among the 5,800 supposed closest ancestors. In other words, just as the ants are supposed to have a common ancestor, uh, the genes need to have a common ancestor, too. But there's nothing remotely close to those sequences. And if we, it, it 19% on average are orphan genes, which means these came out of outer space. You know? And let's run the numbers here on this. Okay, so if you've got 5,800 species in this subgroup of, of ants with 17,000 genes average each, and we times that by 19%, what do we get? Over 18 million genes for which we cannot give any evolutionary explanation for. 18 million. And we cannot do a slow, gradual change from one to the other. So what can we expect if we look at all 14,000 ant species or of all life? You know, how many orphan genes might we have out there? Well, consider the words of Darwin. He's now talking about organs, you know, the origin of the organs like the eye, but I think we could say even more quantitatively about genes. So Darwin once said, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ, or I add gene sequence, um, which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. I think in one subgroup of ants, we've seen 
18 million of them. <laughs> so now we get finally to my good friend, Dr. John Sanford. He's, this is a man It's a gracious, humble man. I wish we could have him here sometime. He's um, one of my dearest friends on earth. And uh, this man is a great scientist. He is the inventor of the gene gun, which, by the way, he would not have invented had it not been that he converted from uh, theistic evolution to young earth creation. See, as a theistic evolutionist, he thought, okay, the way to make new varieties of plants that would be useful to us is we've got to mutate them and then artificially select the good ones. Well, at Cornell University, he did that for years, and, and he said all he pretty much produced is I had something that I could sell, but pretty much it was junk. Um, and then he, his conversion happened, and then he got thinking, okay, if the good genes that are out there were actually created, not evolved through mutation, then perhaps rather than trying to mutate new wonderful varieties, maybe the best thing to do would be find ways to more efficiently mix and match the created ones. And so he did, and that's the gene gun technology, which feeds almost half the world today. And what have you done for the world today? <laughs> but he doesn't think that's his most significant contribution. He thinks it's Mendel's accountant, which he's allowed me to use. So for me, using it's like the Cub Scouts working on the Marine stuff, right? So there's a lot of details here. I just kind of show you, ooh, see, it really is. Uh, my name's on it, C-H-R-I, and, and we have all these inputs so on the top, we got a bunch of inputs, and then these tabs here in the middle, mutations, natural selection, and so forth. And this is the most powerful program by far that I know of for testing evolutionary models. And so we're testing the potential. Is it even theoretically possible for evolution to work? And if so, how? Well, the values in here are default, this particular one's all default, which is all literature based. And you have almost, you, you have over a dozen, you know, close to two dozen variables. And having taught population genetics, everything that's important, supposed to be important to survival, is among these variables. And you can change it to pretty much anything you can heart's desire. And so, and any curve of it that you desire. It's a, it's a very powerful program. So in running this program, I've read the default start with, and it shows mutations accumulate. There's 10 per person per generation, which is the setting here. And so 10 times 500 generations is 5,000. And so that red line there doesn't quite get to the 5,000 mark. Why not? Well, because natural selection is eliminating some of them. Plus, there's just pure luck, where some will die off by pure luck as well. But natural selection is not eliminating very many, is it? Um, trying to slow down mutation accumulation with natural selection is like taking a bicycle handbrake and trying to stop a Mack truck with it. You know, it, slow, it helps a little bit, but it's not enough to matter. And that was the big startling revelation when I worked with this program. I said, you know, we've made such a big deal about natural selection, but I'm finding when I do these actual simulations, natural selection doesn't matter very much. Mutation accumulation is, is the elephant in the room, and it's not stoppable. And I said, why didn't I know that beforehand? I know with, like, uh, hemophilia, you know, Queen Victoria apparently uh, passed... Uh, hemophilia down, and that's a horrible genetic disease, and how's natural selection doing eliminating it? If I had a student as a junior high who, had, who was a descendant to Queen Victoria and had hemophilia. So it hasn't happened yet, and that's the real bad ones. What do we do about the real subtle ones? So here's the overall effect of the fitness. So if you're getting all those mutations, fitness goes down. And it, in this case, after 500 generations, we're down to about 76%, just under 76%. So we lost about a quarter of fitness. Okay, and I know a lot of charts and stuff, and it's kind of awful to look at. Um, I apologize for it. But, you know, that's when you're actually working with the stuff, that's what you're looking at. So, 
Okay, and this, we break down, this program is so awesome. It keeps track of every nucleotide of all three billion nucleotides, of every individual for every generation for all those variables. Okay, to run this properly, you need a cluster of 28 computers, and the average run here takes 15 to 20 minutes to run these things for 500 generations. And if you increase the population size or anything, it slows it down a lot more. So all the red are showing the negative ones, the negative varieties. The closer to the middle, the more neutral. And notice all the green. <laughs> One little tiny box there. That's it. That's because beneficial mutations are very rare. And usually they're not all that beneficial. So let's up natural selection. I said it didn't affect things very much. Let's check that out. Okay, on our first simulation, we had a heritability of 0.2. Translate in English, natural selection is deciding 20% of survival. 80%, other 80% is other factors, which is realistic. I mean, looking in nature, that's typically what we find. All right? So, but let's up that. Like when things are maybe really evolving, then maybe that kicks into a higher level. So, oh, let's go to 80%. Heritability, 0.8. So I showed you the first one, again, about 75%. Um, actually, round that up to 76% fitness. How does the increased heritability slow down, um, help uh, fitness? It's basically 76% still. There's only a half a percent difference in 500 generations. So again, natural selection is like doing next to nothing. Oh, Okay, then let's look at something else. Okay, the mutation rate. We, it's the default is a mutation rate of 10 per person per generation. But the literature tells us that that's not realistic. I mean, there's reason because what we thought was junk DNA, which turns out to have been a myth, um, that was a basis for the 10. It wasn't, they knew what they were doing when they put 10. But since then we've seen, oh, the data shows us it's more like 100. You can ignore the first one because that was a minimum number, and it's an old study. The more recent studies, which actually give a range or an amount, are all somewhere very roughly in the 100 range. Okay, so let's put 100 mutations per generation in here and see what happens. Okay, there's our original one at 75, uh, almost 76% fitness. And look what happens here. You increase mutations, and this thing crashes. In 200, just over 200 generations, they're extinct. Ooh, that's not good. This is, understand, for evolution to work, this has all got to be greater than, this is be more than 100%. It's got to improve. We start at 100% and everything degenerates. To, for upward, onward evolution, this has to go up, not down. So let's try some more things, because I fooled around with this a lot. Okay, this program, and others have fooled around with a lot, and we have found ways to make it go upward, onward evolution. But in order to do so, we have to do things like take things we know what the data should be, and, and then we've got to multiply things by like a hundredfold. And if we, multi if we go way out from what the data will support, we can make evolution works. But if, as long as we work within the data, even an order of magnitude, if we gave evolution an order of magnitude on everything, it fails. So this, we learned, as Dr. Sanford says, he's, he learned more in 45 minutes working with Mendel's accountant than his entire graduate school study of, of population genetics. So um, in the literature... We got about half a million genes studied, and in those genes are, are mutations, and out of those mutations, found 186 beneficials. At least they are called beneficials. You look up closely, most of those beneficials are either broke because the genes were broken, and so something that, it'd be kind of like if I got my eye, eye gouged out, that would be bad, right? But if that kept me out of the military and I didn't die in war because I wasn't drafted, in a sense, in this sense, it would be, quote, good. It saved my life. So the beneficials here are like that. You're breaking, destroying, ruining things. You know, to keep the enemy from crossing the bridge, you blow the bridge up. So that's a good thing you blew up your bridge. But you're losing things, right? You can't go from bacteria to humans by continually blowing things up. 
<laughs> you got to actually create something, and none of these mutations created anything. Uh, either you're blowing it up or you're trivially modulating something that already exists. So, okay, let's improve our number of favorable mutations from a really small percent of only a hundredth of one percent is the default, and we'll multiply that by a hundred. Or no, we're multiple. Yeah. Uh, we're now up to 0.01, which means that's 1%. So we went from a hundredth of 1% up to 1% of all mutations are going to be beneficial. Okay? So we try that. It goes, at least they survived this time, 500 generations, but they're down to 11%. This is not your upward onward evolutionary progress, right? So, oh, there's one more thing. I tried a lot of things, and there's only one more thing I can do to make a substantial help. And by the way, I had 80% for natural selection here. So we're trying to help it all we can because we have to. It's just not working. So um, that's the, the maximum fitness um, of how much it contributes to uh, survival, to uh, fitness. And so I'm, I'm increased it so that some of these mutations the beneficial ones, will increase its fitness by 10%. Imagine, one nucleotide out of 3 billion is going to make the whole organism 10% more fit. That's giving it a lot of, one typo, a lot of credit. You know, I mean, imagine how, if you had one typo in 800 Bibles, that would be about the size of our genome. Uh, one typo, is it going to make it 10% better? Um, maybe not. But, hey, there, I mean, that's not a really good analogy because there are some things that can be small changes, can be monumental in effect. So there, there's some validity there. But at any rate, we do that. It drops way down, and it makes a comeback. And I said, hey, it's coming back, so don't stop at 500 generations. Keep going. I keep going. And it went to 4,232 generations, <laughs> and the 28 computers went, <laughs> It took a day to kill all those computers. <laughs> and so that's all I could do. Now we're at, a, at, at all our machinery can run. And notice what it's done. In that time, we've gotten just under 60% fitness. And so it went down, coming back, but it's leveling off. So, and we're giving it everything we, we've got. So, um, I'm going to skip this one. So, geneticists agree. I love these quotes. I mean, when I say geneticists, I'm talking evolutionary geneticists. Okay? These are guys who are looking for upward, onward evolutionary change. But what do they observe? Not because of Mendel's accountants, but because of other independent ways of studying genetics. What do they find? Dr. Crow says, we're inferior to cavemen. Okay? Degenerating just like Mendel's accountant, right? Uh, Kondraskoff he says, no human geneticist doubts man degenerating. None. This is, this is uh, unanimous. And then Lynch says, we're degenerating at a rate of 1% to 5% per generation. Even at 1%, that means we're extinct in 100 years. Um, I think his estimate, though, is is more doom and gloom than is reality. I, th I don't think it's quite as bad as Lynch thinks. Because that's true of one generation, but he's looking at a linear thing. Whereas we saw Mendel's account, it's, it's, it, there's a logarithmic pattern. So it would drop and slow down. Not, extinction wouldn't be as fast as Lynch is suggesting here. But nevertheless, it's catastrophic. It's observable. It's happening around this. Mutation accumulations everywhere. Uh, one thing I should have mentioned from the last slide, uh, the last comment there. Mutation is the primary cause for aging and death. This is a real thing. Okay? The human race is going extinct. You see in inbreeding how people get all messed up? That's just revealing hidden mutations. That is a preview of what's happening to the entire race, human race. This is real. So, in conclusion, Mendel's accountants demonstrates that... Uh, that the beneficial mutations are being overwhelmed by the harmful ones. And when you couple them together, it's like getting a good bill in Congress and then get a bad bill, bad stuff attached to it. 
and it's a package deal, and the bad is worse than the good. And that if you have mutation rates of two or more, then degeneration happens quickly. So thus, the standard mechanisms for evolutionary progress of mutation and natural selection is going to get rid of all the bad stuff because keep just the good mutations and things get better and better. It doesn't work. When you get to real numbers, it just doesn't work. So what is that suggesting? Not only can we not have upward-onward evolution, even theoretically, we cannot even sustain a species more complex than a bacteria for a million years. What does that tell us? Well, life isn't so old then. It can't be. We'd be extinct by now. In fact, Kondrakoff had wrote, written articles says, why haven't we been extinct a hundred times over? <laughs> you know? Um, geneticists are coming up with this, and they're saying, this isn't good, folks. Um, so, at any rate, um, so with that, the final conclusion to all this is what? I can't read from here, so I'll turn around. Okay, God created kinds. Uh, life reproduces after its kind. The fossil record, comparative anatomy, and genetics all reflect creation mosaic, that things are indeed reproducing and distinct by kinds, not by evolutionary orchard. And so thought life is thousands, not millions of years old. And then evolutionary common descent is not supported by science nor scripture. And I love this, this paraphrase from Martin Luther. He said, It is rational to, to trust the written eyewitness account of he who cannot lie over the speculations of men whose theories constantly change. So had even all this science had gone against the creation viewpoint, um, in my eyes, from what I've learned from Scripture, I would still stand with what Scripture has to say. And with that, thank you. Oh, our four key questions. So what do you do with all this? Basically, what I've shown you was more of shock and awe, right? It's probably not a lot here that you could really go out and use today. But here's something, just having your faith hopefully strengthened here. Uh, Here's some key questions that can be asked if if you're dealing with someone who's an expert. First of all, stall for time. Ask him, get clarification. What did you mean by that? Also, that shows respect, right? And then this next one. Uh, how do you know that's true? Let them explain give, and learn something, right? Ask questions, learn something. And then, okay, they give some explanation. What is your source of information? Okay, so now they do that and do a really good job. There's always this question, and it's good to put, put it back in the expert's uh, lap again to deal with. But what if you're wrong? And then when they come up with good objections and questions, write them down and say, hey, I don't know, but I'd be interested in researching that and seeing what I can come up with. And then doctor, ask Dr. George Matsko, you know. <laughs> or you can ask me too. Anyway, with that, thank you very much.